Hello and uh, welcome everyone today uh, joining us. Uh, we're going to be talking today uh, to some gold um, developers and uh, soon to be uh, producers. So with on the hot seat today, we've got Alex Black, President and CEO of uh, Rio2 with their uh, Phoenix uh, Phoenix project down in the Atacama region, um, Copia Power District, Chile. Uh, we've got Kevin Bullock, President and CEO of Anaconda Mining uh, with a project in Halifax and Jack London, President and CEO of Bluestone Resources with their Blanco uh, Gold Project. Um, hello, gentlemen, and uh, welcome. Here's the, here's the question I wanted to uh, talk to you about. Oh, it's really it's really a thought. Um, everyone knows everyone knows the Lassonde curve. Um, the way that uh, people get excited at, at the beginning um, of the expiration, and then it kind of sort of drops off rather dramatically while they while you go through the kind of feasibility and development stage. So. You guys are at that point. It's it's all rather boring, according to the market. Um, what's your take on that, Alex? Um, yeah, I mean, it's 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 interesting. Every project is different. Um, we as CEOs, I think, um, and I'm speaking for the other two that's on this call, uh, just have to deal with it. I mean, it is what it is. Uh, everybody goes through it. It's interesting what you say about exploration versus development. And Jack could probably relate to this, is that both he and I have two assets that were discovered uh, quite a long time ago. Um, in my case, uh, with Rio 2, the Phoenix Gold Project in Chile, which had a 5 million ounce resource defined back in 2014. And here we are in 2022 uh, about to build it. Um, we haven't had that in our company. I mean, it just hasn't been a part, the exploration phase hasn't been part of our company. So all of a sudden we've come to own this asset and, and take it into the development phase. So, yeah, and, and Jack's probably in the same position. I'll let him speak for himself, but, you know, he, he bought an asset from Gold Corp in Guatemala, um, has done some exploration, but, you know, it was pretty well defined before that. And, uh, and, and, and now he's, he's looking to take it forward. So um, it, it just depends on the asset. And Kevin, you know, obviously has become CEO a, a couple of years ago of, of a company that was going nowhere and he's revitalised it and, and uh, put it back on the map and been doing some exploration and, and other things that we haven't, well, I haven't been doing a lot of exploration in my company, for example. So, yeah, it's, 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 it's a funny it's a funny phenomenon and, and different companies slot into it. But, um, yeah, it, it just depends on how you came about your asset, where it is and what stage it's at as to where you sort of fit on that curve. Um, well, it's a very good point what you made, Alex, about, about us and, and being with a company that, uh, you know, Anaconda had very, very small gold production over the last 10 years. But that's allowed us to build up an operating team, even though it's a small operation. And allowed us to, in a non-dilutive way, advance our development project, which is Goldboro in eastern Nova Scotia. And yeah, that project, again, like, uh, like Jack and, and yourself, um, that was actually mined in the late 1800s. So it wasn't discovered by us. But what we did find out is we've developed it from what was thought to be a, a stacked anticlinal series of, of zones uh, with an underground scenario to something that's a large high-grade open pit now. And, you know, the way we look at, at the Lausanne curve, and we're quite aware of, of, of uh, what you call boring, Matt, um, but what we do is, is 
we have limited production in Newfoundland. We have a big exploration arm. Uh, we, we, do, we are still an exploration company. And that Lausanne curve, the flat line on it that you're talking about, the boring area of permitting and developing, we're going to stick a wedge in that and we're going to turn it upwards. And that's with our drilling, that's uh, our exploration drilling that's west of our current resources. What's the best place to look for gold resources is next to a large resource already or in the shadow of a head frame. Well, our trend is in the shadow of many head frames and it's next to three, but we're currently at 3 million ounces now. So that exploration is going to be quite exciting while we're in the boring period. So we want to wedge that line up with our exploration. So Jack, I mean, what are your thoughts on this one? Because I'm, I'm, what I'm trying to understand is why the market reacts the way that it does. Is Kevin right in the sense that you need to kind of layer um, the, the the story in the sense of still retain this exploration blue sky to kind of give people that hope that there's kind of future value here? Or is it just a case of, as Alex says, maybe you just need to weather it and say, we're in a phase which people don't understand and they don't value but they will catch up at some point. What's your understanding? Well, I, I definitely think that adding exploration to the development story does help. It gives investors something to look forward to when you're going into a period where you're really looking at meeting engineered and scheduled and budgeted timelines, right? So once you're financing your project, once you get the approvals, and once you really break ground to, to start building a mine, the market will be looking to make sure that you're on schedule and on budget. But if you can add in an exploration campaign, and that's exactly right, you know, what Kevin's saying, you're going to be able to, depending on the geology of, of the deposit and the resource that you're looking at developing, a lot of the time, there's some exciting exploration near the existing resource. So we're looking at doing something similar with Bluestone Resources around our Cerro Blanco gold project. There are a lot of prospective targets. So being able to allocate some of the capital that you're raising to build the mine uh, towards exploration, it does help. But also, I mean, what we're looking to do in this business is see how quickly we can go from pre-development phase into operations. So I think, you know, trying to minimize that project timeline and get it, getting yourselves into the operation as quick as possible is, is of paramount importance because if you have a five-year construction schedule, People are just going to say, okay, well, in four years, we'll come back and look at how they're doing. And then that's when the money should come into the company because that's when we'll see the re-rate income. So you got to really look at reinventing yourself if you're going to stay a junior or single asset uh, company. And then another opportunity that comes into play as well during this period and what we need to be doing as CEOs is look at, is there an opportunity during a development phase to do something like an M&A uh, that, that you're adding assets Another thing that you can also look at doing to help fund the project is, is with an acquisition, something that is in production already to help fund your project to, to advance and, and get yourselves into operation. So there's a lot of things that you need to be doing. It's complex as it is, just building a mine in, on its own, but that's why you need to make sure that the executive team from a corporate development side is, is looking at opportunities to, to keep the flavor in the story because you don't wanna lose shareholders or you don't wanna lose excitement. So it's, it's like that balance between making sure the team is focused on delivering on schedule and on budget, the, the construction of this project, but also keeping, keeping your name relevant because nobody likes to be called boring, especially in the mining space. I mean, it's, it's anything but boring. Every day we're dealing with crazy things that, uh, that you know, sometimes uh, it fires all hands on deck and other times 
you can deal with it quick, but uh, it's, it's an, anything but boring industry. So we need the shareholders to understand that. Right. As well. so, but if, so if you look at the Lasson curve, that really uh, is an, uh, at an asset level. People should say, right, the Lasson curve, the, the asset is going through the Lasson curve. The company itself has an opportunity and has some levers it can pull or utilize to keep the interesting, uh, keep the story interesting and keeping that line with a kind of st- st- steady growth or c- c- certain value uh, attributed to it. But if, I think, Matt, I'd like to, I'd like to comment on that. Yeah. I, I mean, Yes, uh, true in a lot of cases, but not in all cases, because a single asset could have a lot of exploration potential on strike or parallel or beneath or above. Um, And these things happen uh, not on a regular basis, but they happen over time where bigger deposits are found next to ones that are already being permitted. And I think it's important to keep an active campaign going on your asset if it's a single asset. And that's why, you know, and, and boring is a strange term because quite honestly, during this boring period, uh, some of the most significant things for a company to gain value happen. Right. Let's all talk about <laughs> that. Because, yeah, because it's, 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 compl- it's complicated. It's de-risking. But it's not like, you, as Jack said, you know, it can take five years to get to that point. But during the, the four-year run-up where people may decide to you know, look elsewhere, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of moving parts. I mean, I mean, Alex, you've, you've, you've built a company from 12 million bucks to one point. Uh, eight billion bucks. Um, what are the things that are going on during that? So one point two billion uh, bucks. Uh, I, I don't want to give you credit where credit's not due. So it was only one point two. Um, where? What are the things that you have to you know get right? Because it, it's all important, but you're not getting value for it. Yeah, it's 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 all sort of hidden, um, as as Jack was saying. I mean, you know, there's a lot of things going on in the background. Um, as I say to everybody, it's a bumpy road from 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 exploration to to building a mine, and uh, navigating those bumps is 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 quite an intriguing um, experience. And you know, but as CEOs, you know, one of the things we we have to learn is to keep our cool and to navigate those bumps as best we can, and to keep our um, management team centered on what the end goal is, which is to get to production. Um, and as long as those bumps don't turn into brick walls, as I, as I say to my guys, then uh, we'll survive and we'll get to the end. Um, but um, unfortunately, a lot of it's hidden. Um, you know, a lot of people say to me, oh, we haven't heard from you guys for a while because I really haven't got anything to say. If I was to talk about all the bumps that we were experiencing, you know, I, I think people would just go, you know, why are you doing this? <laughs> why, why are you uh, self-flagellating yourself? But, um, you know, it, it is what it is. And, and, and you know, uh, all, all we can do, Kevin's in a great position with his, his project. I mean, obviously, he's got 3 million ounces and he's looking at building that maybe up to 5 million ounces with more expiration. And maybe Jack's going to do the same. I've got 5 million ounces, you know, 1.4 inferred. It could be 10 million ounces at the end of the day. But in, in our case, from a Rio 2 perspective, it's, you know, when are you going to get to production? And then I'm still, I'm getting questions from investors. Okay, so you're going to get to production. Then when are you going to expand the project to be a much bigger project than what you're going to start with? So there's always these expectations and demands on us. Um, and um, unfortunately, some of the things we, we just keep to ourselves and we, we just navigate through and, and we go through a bit of a quiet period. Um, apart from any exploration that we might be doing, um, uh, delivering what, we, what we're saying we're going to do. 
those are great points, Alex. And it's, it is, it is the question is when, you know, outside of what is your ESG and what is your, what is your environmental considerations? It's when are you going to start pouring gold? And, you know, that's why, you know, we have this, we have a three pronged approach to, to, to growth and that, you know, one of them is, is development. One of them is exploration and one of them is M&A, like Jack was, was mentioning, you know, you still got to look at your M&A opportunities as you move forward. But, you know, we we are, as soon as we knew we had more than 10 years of mine life within the open pit of, of the known mineralization, and now with 1.1 million ounces of reserve in a feasibility, that's what we're permitting and building. But that doesn't stop us from adding, as, as, as Alex said, from adding, you know, going from our 3.1 to what we think it'll be, you know, much more than five um, <clears throat> alongside that. And that creates that ability to create excitement while you're building and then it's okay. When are you going to expand? Well, we're we're actually drilling west, and we're going to start putting a real resource together. And you can start seeing how that may look as an expansion. I mean, I mean, Jack, you, you just just look at you know we we we've had a couple of conversations in the past, and you know you know you're dealing with jurisdictional risk. You're dealing with you know some of these ESG issues. Um, you know that every company's asked about. But at the end of the day, your group wants to get into production. It's it, you've got to have the right people on board to do that. You do have to do, as Alex says, problem solves, problem solve every day. Um, I guess, are there some days you wish that you weren't a public company? Well, that's a good question. And to complement kind of what, what Kevin and Alex were talking about on the, the just this last discussion here, there's a lot of things that are also outside of our control that will play into bucking that Laston trend, right? Um, for me, being in, in Guatemala, there are um, other projects that have, uh, come up to roadblocks, like for instance, Escobal, that's owned by Pan American Silver. There's currently an injunction on that mine. However, there is a consultation process that's running forward and they're actually gaining some good ground on that. And I think once that mine gets approved to go back into operations, that's something that doesn't matter where we are in terms of the development timeline, it will give investors comfort that Guatemala is, is a country again that you can invest in because there's a lot of prospectivity. It's so much opportunity in Guatemala that people don't realize because there's, um, you know, the sentiment towards investing in Guatemala being an extremely risky jurisdiction. However, me spending all my time down there and being focused on developing Cerro Blanco in the, in the south of the country, I see that there is a pathway to getting forward to production. And that's why we're spending all of this time and committing to put a lot of capital in there at risk of, of going, our, going into construction by ourselves. Another thing is the commodity price. We're in a cyclical business. If gold prices go down or go up, usually what you see is the equities follow. However, there is a widening gap between the gold price and, and gold equities right now. And I think that that's an opportunity. Soon we'll see more money pivoting from generalist funds going back into the precious metal sector, especially with the uncertainty around the world right now. And I think, you know, for us as developers, Controlling what we can control, yes, adding exploration, looking at M&A opportunities, trying to make sure that we're, you know, driving cost and schedule, uh, you know, safety, our ESG protocols are all top notch. We need to do that. And then there's factors outside of our uh, control that we need to monitor because sometimes there's things that can happen that create other opportunities, right? So. Um, it, it, there's just always so much going on and, and yes, you know, building a mine or even in an operation or exploration in the mining industry, you're, you're operating in, in most of the time jurisdictions that, that people may not want to venture into in the Lundin group. That's where we've made all of our success though, going where other companies may not want to go, because if you can, you know, 
get that social license, create the relationships with the host country, you'll be able to create a lot of value, not just for the shareholders, but for the people of that country. And so things happen if you keep moving forward and making progress and, and the day will come for that company when they get success and they go into, go into operations. Right, Alex, there's one for you. Um, you're not shy. Um, we've, we get a lot of, um, inbound questions, you know, asking us about the theses for various commodities and, you know, and people coming in from outside of the, the, the mining space now from, from the tech space, you know, Gen Z audience saying, uh, what is all this about? What is this vocabulary that they're using? What is this, um, um, thesis that they have? You know, what, who do I, who's good? Who's not? Um, and that's made all the more difficult when they're sort of looking in and they're, they're, they're seeing things like what's gone on at Pure Gold recently with Harp, you know, in the last couple of years, Red Eagle, Argonaut, Ask. Technically, you're at a very difficult stage. You've got a lot of problems to solve. But yeah, and when companies don't do it properly, it sends out real negative messages for people perhaps looking in and thinking about investing in mining. So what, 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 what yeah, do you think, think that's a fair point? Yeah, I totally agree. Um, you know, the industry has not done itself much of a favour over the last 20 years with, with quite a number of, uh, of, of underperforming disasters that have happened. And, and unfortunately, they all stick out. So that's part of the navigation for all of us on this call is to navigate around that and to demonstrate that, um, you know, we, we have the ability to, to execute and deliver. And that comes down to experience, track record, et cetera, and, 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 and just... Uh, you know, confidence to 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 pull off what you what you're trying to do, but um, yeah, unfortunately. But then then you got this great example recently of Highcroft, which is a dog of a project, and and some tech uh, uh, tech people and Eric Sprott uh, piled into that, and 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 it just went went through the roof as far as um, you know price appreciation, and you know. All of us who are in the industry have witnessed what's happened at Highcroft over over the years. Just shaking our heads, going, "Where's this going to all end?" And for me, it's it's a bit scary because there are a lot of generalists and a lot of Gen Xs or whatever you call them, Gen Zs or or, or whoever, um, piling into that stuff, and they're going to they're potentially going to get burnt, right? And then we get another bad you know um, spin on our business. So it's, it's, it's a tough business um, and it's, it's difficult for retail investors and, and what I call punters, retail punters, to, to, to try and sort out through the thousand odd companies that are out there, you know, what they want from an investment perspective or a trade perspective and, uh, and, and what's their expectations for those companies and those companies uh, capability of executing and delivering what they're saying they're going to do. So it's it's quite an interesting <laughs> interesting uh, uh, game that we're in this gold business, particularly the gold business. I think um, it is it is because I mean what what happens is when we're what, what do you, hang on before you go, Jack. What are you a Gen X, Gen Z, or what are you? <laughs> I think I'm Gen Z. <laughs> you definitely I'm, are. Definitely I'm are. still you, in the 80s. Still in the eighties. I'm a kangaroo. I'm a boomer. So there you go. Anyway, keep going. Keep going. Sorry to pull you up. Sorry to pull uh, you up. No, no, no worries at all. But um, what I was just going to say is like, you know, in this industry, when we have a company that's successful, uh, that creates value in a legitimate way, then we're often, you know, um, commended by our peers. But then when something goes wrong, 
we're shunned by the world, right? So you, it, it's uh, it's definitely not an industry for the the faint of heart. You got to be willing to believe in what you're doing because you know there's going to be a lot of um, a lot of I guess targets on your back as you're looking to move projects forward. But you know the reality is if you build a mine the right way, there's there's no better charity than than building a resource in a uh, sustainable way. You're creating jobs. You're creating uh, education opportunities, and even with not just the mine itself, but with you know the other industries that come around and thrive alongside mining projects. You know, in in Cerro Blanco, we're in an area where there's a lot of opportunities for agriculture businesses or cattle ranching or different types of farming initiatives. And what we want to do is is ensure that those other industries can come on, come come down to this region and thrive. And you create kind of an economic, uh, strategic economic area where the mine is located. Um, and I think what we need to do better as an industry is, of course, market our brand, our business, our project from an economic standpoint, what are these numbers going to generate for the business? But if you create more awareness on what mining can actually be for, uh, for a community that, you know, is, is under the poverty line or that needs just job opportunities, um, I think that can actually help as well create value for the, for the share price uh, because that's what we're looking to do, attract a new form of investor to this space. Because right now, I think the generalist would think, oh, mining, you know, it's, it's more or less a dirty industry. What's the ESG kind of uh, grade on this company? But, you know, if you do it the right way and, and we kind of look to market ourselves a little bit differently with Bluestone going forward, I think uh, the industry can, can work better together, creating awareness on how the benefits can be generated from from mining projects. And so that's something that I want to do. I I think that's a really good point, Jack, because I think, you know, mining companies are now being held accountable uh, in a way that they weren't before. I think social media has uh, enabled that. I think activism has actually actually helped in in a way holding mining companies accountable. What worries me slightly, though, is when you mentioned Highcroft, Alex, is are we in danger of gamifying the 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 industry you know through promotion rather than fundamentals you guys your groups you you as individuals have built minds and you you know the the, the fundamentals don't change um, perhaps the accountability and you know the greenification and ESG and all of those things help in in the way that they they kind of guide you but the fundamentals of my, of becoming a producing mind don't change. Are you worried at all by some of the things you're seeing in the industry by some, by well, maybe well-intentioned uh, or, or not people? I mean, Alex, what, what's your take on that? Uh, you know, I mean, I'd, I'd, people well-intentioned or not, that's not for me to say. Um, you know, I think some people have, um, uh, you know, run faster than they should have. Uh, on certain things, on certain assets, and probably tripped over um, unexpectedly uh, because they didn't uh, outline to investors the, the various pitfalls that could occur. Um, you know, what, what surprises me, and maybe Kevin can talk about this because he, he's a he's going to be a, you know, he is an underground miner. He's going to be more of an underground miner as time goes on. Is that a lot of these um, uh, disasters have been underground mines, um, whereby you know grades have not performed as people have said they would, and that comes down to a lot of things. It comes down to um, 
you know, uh, uh, the uh, complexity of geology and ore bodies, the uh, complexity of metallurgy, etc. And so, you know, I think a lot of people look at the high grades of underground or, or you know, vein-type deposits and go, wow, that's fantastic. But you've got to put it all together, right? And I think Jack's found that out with what he's doing in Guatemala because, um, you know, that was permitted, his project was permitted as, a, as an underground mine, but he's quickly realised that potentially, um, you know, it's much better from an economic perspective to, to look at it from an open pit perspective. So, um, and, and, you know, maybe Kevin can lead on from what I'm saying, um, you know, about the complexities of some of these projects that have gone wrong, which weren't considered to be complex, you know, by investors. Kevin, I don't know. Yeah, I think, I, I, yeah, thanks, Alex. I think that in, investors, unless they're, um, unless they're very technically sound, um, maybe misunderstand how underground works from the drill hole to production. And, you know, I see a lot of um, stocks when they announce very high grade results uh, go up in value. And people are looking at the grade, but not the geometry of the deposit. Now, if you're hitting 300 grams per ton over 0.2 meters, People don't see the point two that aren't technical, but to me, I'd rather have two grams over 300 meters than 300 grams over two meters. So the point is, it's the economics behind it. And, and, and the term great is king. I kind of disputed that for a long time. It's great is king if all else is equal. Nothing is ever equal in any two deposits. So there's about 500 to 5,000 different things that play a role uh, other than grade. Um, so, you know, at the end of the day, when you go underground and you're mining, remember you're mining between two openings uh, that are uh, quite a distance apart and you're drilling holes and blasting. And, and that creates you know, fractures in the walls that creates dilution. And you can have a very high grade underground mine that has a lot of dilution because of the quality of the rock mechanics in the walls that does worse than a very low grade underground mine that has bulk mining or sublevel caving or something that has very solid and strong uh, host rock. So there's just so much technically to underground. Um, and, and then, of course, you've got to provide air. Sometimes you've got to provide refrigeration if it's a deep mine. Um, you've, got to, you've got to provide uh, power and, and, uh, and air and water throughout every single meter of workings down there. And you never really open the deposit up in 3D enough to really understand it well. And one of the things we do at our company is, you know, in our PEA, which was done before our feasibility, we looked at developing underground in addition to the open pit, but only in year six to start developing ramps from within the pits. And that's because we wanted five years of seeing the deposit in 3D and not planning an underground on drill holes that big. Uh, very important to understand your deposit in 3D not through software, but through walking over it for years as you mine it as an open pit to decide whether it makes sense to go underground or not. So, you know, you're absolutely right, Alex. It's, uh, there's so many things besides grade uh, that, that people have to really look at. And, and they don't. They just see high grade in the news release, and the next thing you know, the stock doubles. And it doesn't <laughs> it just, you know, there's so much more to it. Jack, yeah, you've been through this process recently. If you're, just one comment on that. I mean, if you're looking with a true like mind builders hat on grade, of course, is important, but geometry orientation and just how the deposit was formed is critical. You don't really go, oh, I'm going to do this 
my, I'm going to build this mine with, with an underground development scenario or an open pit scenario. You look at the geometry, you got to go back to the basics and see how this deposit was formed. And then our job is to maximize the value that we can create from mining out this resource. So with Cerro Blanco, for instance, when I joined in 2020, uh, in January 2020, the, the project was permanent and we were looking at it through the lens of an underground development. However, when you look at the geometry and the grade of this deposit and the fact that mineralization goes to surface and really the, the, the shape of the deposit is essentially an upside down cone in situ, it's much more amenable to surface mining methods. It's much less technically challenging. Yes, you're suffering on grade. I mean, we go from uh, around 10 gram per ton to around two gram per ton over the life of the mine, but we're gonna be producing more than double the amount of gold and almost more than triple the amount of silver. So, I mean, you-, you, you Exactly what, that's exactly what Kevin was saying, right? Yeah. His, yeah his, you know, it happened to us too. I mean, we, you know, we looked at our deposit at Goldboro as the same thing. It was an underground, when we bought uh, Orex uh, exploration that had that single asset, it was 850,000 ounces, 27 lenses. We're now at 89 lenses. But when we were doing the dilution halo, in other words, looking at what, if we did have dilution underground, what would that grade be that we use to apply? And it came out to an average of 0.8. And everybody was saying, well, that's really nice high grade dilution. I said, no, it's not. It's ore in an open pit. So, um, you know, we changed focus and all of a sudden we added, we doubled our resource, uh, you know, 100% increase in resource. We ended up with 1.1 million ounces of reserve in open pits at 2.86 grams per ton. It's the highest undeveloped open pit on the East Coast. So, you know, just a change of focus and understanding what it takes from a mine builder's uh, view, like, you know, looking at this as, as an underground situation is not the way to do it anymore. And, and, and you've done the same, Jack. So it's, it, it just, you change focus. That's all you've done. Change focus and, and, and the way you're going to go about something and you've added extreme value. So it's about, it's about your team and whether they've done it before and moving forward, you know, and, and understanding that you're going to hit every brick wall that you see, you're going to hit but we have to pull together to break through them. And we'll, we'll tick every box. And, and the three people on this call as CEOs uh, have done this before and we'll do it again. And there will be value in these companies that'll approach your nav. See, th this is why I asked the question at the beginning, because this phase for me is anything but boring. The problems you're solving in this, these, you know, the feasibility development stage are truly fascinating. And you're having to uh, be agile and adjust to, you know, what, what, what you're, what you're seeing, um, underground. So it, it's, I think it's a, it's a brilliant, brilliant phase, which I, I'm, I'm sure what I'm actually trying to understand is why more credit is not given here. But I think, you know, what you've all said in the sense that you've got to kind of layer the good news with, with the expiration with multiple projects, maybe even multiple jurisdictions in some cases, um, how, help us well. But here's, here's a recent problem, which I'm sure you've been asked this question every day of the week, which you know, when you're getting yourself set for being financed, when you're getting yourself um, set for you know, building the mine, um, inflation's come along and said, well, hey, you're going to have to think again. Um, I've heard numbers from 5% to 30% in terms of how much it's going to add to the cost of you know, getting up and running. And, and the gold prices. 
it's it's good if you're it's good there's nothing wrong with it it's it's not moving the way people want it to move but it's not sort of that's not being reflected in either equities to allow you to raise cheaper uh money um it, there's a kind of disconnect between gold price and and, and the equities uh, uh, as well so how how are you seeing this playing forward i mean uh, jack i mean talk, talk to me you're you're you've got to raise a lot of money here so what's it looking like for you you know, well, fortunately for us, we just came out with our feasibility study in February. So we were able to get pricing all the way up to around December, January. Yes, um, you know, I think uncertainties around um, cost is, is going to remain like from the PEA that we released in February of 2021 to the to the FS that we just released. We've seen things like the price of steel double energy costs from, you know, uh, pulling from the grid or just for petroleum products. I mean, those things have gone up, but we've been, uh, we've been able to do optimizations in our engineering work. Uh, we've justified bringing the capacity of the processing facility down by 20%. Um, but with a pit optimization exercise, we've been able to maintain our production profile. So you're always having to look at uh, finding opportunities. Yes, this inflationary environment that we're living in adds another kind of complexity for us to, to try and build our project. But then you're also always needing to find areas where you can improve the robustness of the project. And I think over time, things will stabilize. Um, however, you know, going into a construction phase, hopefully by the end of this year, we are incorporating some pretty significant cost increases to our project that weren't around a year ago. Um, but I think another one is, is supply chains and, and lead times and, and understanding those and finding ways to mitigate that as well and looking at where you're getting your long lead equipment from, who your suppliers are, what, time of, what type of liquidated damages you can put in if uh, some contracts are not being upheld or, or there's slippage in, in, in uh, procuring materials. So there's, again, like, you know, we could spend a whole hour or two going into like the technical details of procurement and inflation and cost and, and, and looking at how to um, optimize that. But you just always have to be on your toes looking for options B, C, D, E all the way down, because um, for every problem in this industry, there is a solution and, and maintaining cost schedule uh, and, and quality as well as safety. Those are the kind of the four key drivers to make sure that you have a team dedicated to, to maintaining all of those things. If you've got the experience, if you got the experience, that, that, that's fine. We, we interviewed a company uh, end of last week um, who couldn't get a hold of reagents. They're, they're in Mongolia. They couldn't get a hold of reagents. Nine months down, they were producing heat bleach pads, all, you know, producing uh, cash, lovely, then stopped for nine months. Their share price has been absolutely beaten up. They were a fairly entrepreneurial, young, dynamic team, but got caught out. Is that how, how do you avoid that? Well, you know, and, and I'll, I'll let the uh, Alex and, and Kevin chime in here. But you always, you know, what we do in our company, we have our, um, you know, for each area, we have a risk register. We always are looking at updating kind of what are the highest risks, what are our mitigation plans around those risks, right? So you really have to be looking out in time, you know, three, six, nine months, a year ahead. What do we see coming down the pipeline as being a challenge, right? And of course, inflation is one of those top level risks. And how can we mitigate around that? Can we set up contracts with various service providers? Um, you know, can we look at contracting out, yes, at a bit of a higher cost, but making sure that we're getting our product or our materials to site. You have to look at finding alternative sources and sometimes you have to add resources. So that's where you may see costs come up 
But then you have to look at, okay, well, what can we do to, to keep bringing costs down? And sometimes that means, okay, well, we can't go out and do this exploration campaign that we wanted to do. Um, or maybe, you know, the way in which we were going to build this fab shop, we're going to have to kind of look at doing something a little bit more, um, you know, of a stick build, and then we can look at optimizing it once we're in operations. So there's there are always levers that you can pull you always want to keep a little bit of uh you know something up the sleeve in case these types of things occur so maybe what happened there is that you know they they didn't have enough resources looking at that particular issue and they got you know they got uh stung for it which is unfortunate but it obviously happens a lot in this space well but i think they've moved from a sort of just-in-time contracting through to realization that perhaps you need some inventory in this you know covid environment supply chain issue environment I mean, alex what's your take on that um yeah well, I think it's like a wild bucking horse right now. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's 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 a, it's an interesting time, and all this inflation and 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 supply, mainly inflation. I mean, with with fuel and 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 product. You know, I mean, it's just and and labour. It's just pretty pretty interesting. But you just got to navigate it. And and you know what I keep saying to people is, I mean, you know, we've we've done a study. We think we know what we're, where our ASIC is based on, you know, the, the study that we did. Obviously, um, you know, what we showed at the time that we did that study, that we had a, a very robust study, we, we, a project, we didn't have a, a marginal project. And I think that's the thing that you want to have. You don't want to have a marginal project going into this, this sort of environment with a mine build. You want to have a pretty robust project. And, and sure, you know, in our case, we estimated ASIC to be uh, $1,000. What happens if it turns out to be 1200 because of all these issues? Well, it doesn't kill the project because we've got a $1,900 gold price or a $2,000 gold price. So, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a bucking horse, as I like to call it. Um, and, and you just got to try and tame it, navigate through it, tame it, and, and then you'll come out the end. But just as inflation goes up, it goes, it's likely to go down at some point as well. It's not a forever thing. I mean, me being a boomer, talking to Jack here, and his dad's probably had this conversation with him because uh, his dad's my age, is, um, you know, look at, look at the, um, the late 70s when we had interest rates at 15%, um, you know, uh, and, and, and then it went down to zero and now we're, we're all sweating bricks because it's going to 2 or 3%. Um, you, know, I, you know, I don't know. you just got to ride through it. Um, in the gold business, it's, and probably in the commodity business in general, as inflation goes up, the commodity goes up as well. So you you tend to you tend to balance things out a little bit, but um, there's no secret answer. And I just say to people, just be patient. You know, uh, let us get to production, let us get to a steady state of production, and at that point, we'll see how everything starts to even out, play out, you know, what is our cost? What is the metal price? What is what is everything? Um, you know, there's a big unknown when you're going into this sort of tunnel. And as Jack says, all you got to do is try and manage the risks as best you can and, and try and come out of it uh, in, a, in, a, in good shape. That's that's what I'd like to say. I think it's, you know, the way, the way we look at it, um, you know, it's corporate philosophy too from the top down. And I think as CEOs, we have to be honest with our project and the costs from the beginning. So there, you know, even though feasibility studies are based on quotes, et cetera, there is, there is some manipulation of several quotes and which one you choose. And, you know, we're not, none of us on this call are putting lipstick on a pig and flying it down, trying to sell it. 
what we're trying to do is build something. And we would look silly if we pushed, you know, to the, to the very, very end of, of ranges um, that, that are not realistic. So what we like to do is, is we look at our project um, not only uh, when we're promoting and talking about it, we don't look at, hey, look at what this looks like when gold hits 2000. We say, look at what this looks like when gold hits 1400 US. It still works. It's still valid. This is a robust project. And if it's not robust, and I'm saying the same thing as Alex, I mean, uh, from a different way, if it's not robust, you know, and it's marginal, uh, that risk register, uh, I mean, you know, you're not, you're probably from a good sound board is not going to give you the go ahead to develop a marginal project in this environment. So, you know, at the end of the day, I think it starts from the very beginning of your consultants and, and, and your team that's building a feasibility and say, look, let's be realistic here because we want to build it. We're not, you know, and, and, and we, need to, we need to ensure that this works. We're, we're requesting lots of money for people, from people uh, to build this. And it has to be realistic. It has to generate the deltas that we want for all of us. And, you know, and, and it's all based on experience and who's done it before and how many times and how you've gone through these, uh, these brick walls. And, and, and we've all, you know, we've all done it before and, and we'll do it again. And, and you got to have the right people in place that, uh, that, that understand that because like Jack said, and, and Alex said, um, there's so many things that could go wrong and y- you just got to fight through it. And, you know, hopefully to what Alex said as well, we have some kind of rollover scenario because we're not building for, in, in, our, in our particular project at Goldboro, we're not building for probably two years because of the permitting process. Um, maybe this inflation kind of rolls over and it's all about timing too. It's not just, you know, I've heard stories about, oh, these guys underestimated the cost of building something by 200 million on a billion dollar project. Oh my God, how'd they do that? Well, they didn't. It was right at the time and they built two years later. Uh, and there was inflation. So it's all timing between the PEA or the previous study, two-year study. And like Jack said, they delivered something very recently, which is probably very realistic in, in kind of within the last few months prices. So did we. We delivered our, our feasibility uh, in December and, and uh, it's based on, you know, year-end last year costs. And there will be some, there will be some cost creep. But by the time we build, there might be some, some rollback too. But do you think you guys need to? You, do you think you guys need to get the the, the narrative um, simplified in, in a sense? You're you're right, Kevin. In the sense that you know the the PEA or the PFS may come out at one number, and then by the time you get around to the next feasibility, stuff's gone up, or you may approach it differently. You know, and Jack, you've been through this. You we're underground, going to go open bit makes more more sense. You know, um, Kevin, you've been through the same process here. Uh, and Kevin, you reference people just look at high grade numbers. Oh, they want three three hundred grams over 0.2 of a meter. That sounds more sexy than 0.2 over you know, 30 meters, what I sorry, two grams over 30 meters. People just don't understand what they're looking at. So it, but that becomes your problem because, because of that misunderstanding, there's a kind of disappointment out there. And you've got, no matter how, how hard you try, how hard you explain it, people go, oh, they didn't do what they said. I mean, you've all suffered from a bit of that, haven't you? I mean, Alex. Before, before jumping in there, there's just two things that both Alex and, said that, and Kevin said that are super important. The first one is the feasibility study is, is essentially a line in the sand, right? You got to draw engineering to a close at one point just to see how the study's looking. And then you continue to advance with engineering and planning and optimizing, right? So that's the timing of when you draw that line in the sand. And that's what you're going to see your project. But the critical thing for a shareholder to understand is they got to believe in the team and believe in the project. And for us, I mean, we look at projects that 
will generate returns in any type of commodity price environment. We're in a cyclical business, so you just need to ensure that the asset that you're putting all this blood, sweat and tears to, to, to develop is in fact going to make money kind of no matter what the climate is in, in your commodity. So um, I think that that was just important to highlight. Fair point. Sorry. Fair, fair point. Alex, I don't know if you can remember my question. <laughs> Uh, don't go keep going. Say it again. <laughs> but, but basically, I'm, I'm saying that um, the market doesn't necessarily always understand the signals and the or the reasons exactly. why you've had to change plans or change tack, and you get marked down, right? And you've all experienced that at some some point. Um, so, do you guys need to change the narrative, or do you need to uh, you know, simplify this so that um, the market does react better? when there is change? I think all we can do is be as open and transparent as we can as we go through the process. Um, you know, nothing's a straight line in the mining industry. Um, you know, we're not making widgets. Um, we, we, we eventually will when we get to production, steady state production and, and, and you know, gold bars start coming out and it gets to, to be quite a methodical process. But um, getting to that point, you know, there's lots of things that can go wrong. And, and, you know, that's the problem with this business. You know, there's been a bit of a, 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 a pretty big brain drain over the last 20 years, I think. Um, there's dinosaurs like me uh, who are still in the business because um, I enjoy it. But, um, you know, it's good to see guys like Jack, you know, who, who, who've done their um, uh, time in projects, you know, in Ecuador, as you have done, Jack, and, and um you know, watched how things happen and occur and go wrong or go good. And, um, but that, that, that's the issue. But I think we as CEOs, all we can do is just deal with, with things as they come up, be open and honest with, with our shareholders when things may go wrong um, or when expectations may not get met. But that's, that's the life of being a CEO. You've got to take the good with the bad. Um, you know, I try and tell people this is a long game. It's not a short game. Um, you know, building a mine and getting uh, uh, building a mining company, uh, it's 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 a long game, and people need to be patient. And there will be ups and downs during that process. I think that uh, that Jack said it extremely well at the very beginning of this whole session about we as a group, mining industry, need to educate uh, people more because the understanding is not there. When I see um, you know, people who mean well for, for your project, but are uh, not, not protesting, but, but just ensuring that you've got your, your ESG and your environmental regulations right, don't really understand um, sometimes that mining is required for everything. And I remember when I was younger and uh, kind, of, uh, kind of probably closer to Alex than Jack in age, but um, I think I remember when I was younger, there used to be license stickers that said, if it, uh, if, if it can't be mined, it must be mined, it must be grown. But I dispute that because you can grow something, but you can't harvest it without mining. So mining, you wouldn't have clothes. You wouldn't, we wouldn't be on this call. You wouldn't have your speaker to protest it. Um, you know, you wouldn't have anything. And mining has been around since the beginning of time and it'll be here till the end of time. And, and we've got to work with it and do better and educate people about that. Right. But you've also got to be accountable for the way that you mine, right? And I think no one's protesting on that, 100%. right? Yeah. 100%. Okay. Yeah. Um, look, I, I think we're all in violent agreement. 
you guys are fund fundamental, uh, fundamentally driven. You're going to build a mine. As you said, Kevin, you're not putting lipstick on a pig here. You, th these things are going to get built. Here's, here's a question, just in terms of education and learning. Okay. Get your investor hats on here, folks. Um, what's your, and I'll, I'll, I'll start with you, Jack. What, um, what, what's your preference, uh, for companies that you may be invested in? Um, if they issue dividends or they do share buybacks? <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a loaded question. I mean, it depends on what the what what the company's looking at, how many shares they out they have outstanding. You know what the future is of the company. So, I think you know if it's a sizable share buyback, then that's probably and you have a lot of shares outstanding, then you know that's probably going to be better. But if you're generating a lot of free cash flow and you don't have another project to invest in within the portfolio of, of the existing company, um, I think that you'll see better share price appreciation by issuing a dividend. Um, so, you know, again, it, it, I don't know if that answered your question. You'd have to give me a little bit more than that to be able to determine if it's a buyback that I would go for or a dividend that I'd be. I, I was just hoping to get something on record, which I can catch you out on like in five years time. That's all. That's what I was trying to do. Uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, um, I mean, I, I think, I think it's a, I think it's a good answer. Maybe that, does that do it for, for everyone else? Kevin, Alex, violent agreement on that? Well, I, you know, I, I think, I honestly think that what Jack said is true, but, but whether you're doing a share buyback or a dividend, you need the, um, the cash within the company or the cash flow within the company to do it. So if you're, if you're not, if you're a growth company, I think it's, it's very, very, um, um, it would be negative to, to do a dividend or a share buyback it, because you don't have the extra cash. You're using it to provide growth for that value that you're trying to achieve. Now, if you're a producer and you don't want to grow and you're generating a lot of money, dividends probably the way uh, to go if you don't have a lot of shares out. So, I mean, I'm just agreeing with Jack. It's just there's different stages of companies. If you're in a growth stage, you don't want to do either of those. Yeah, I'm going to say none of the above. As long as if you're a junior company or a or a, a, a near-term producer or, or short-term producer, like LifeWise, you know, no, none of the above. And uh, there's a couple of companies I've been watching that are doing it right now that have just got into production and, and starting to buy back shares. It's like that they have sent a message to to the market that they're not going to build a mining company. Um, they're, they're just in it for the short term and, and um, they're not going to uh, have a, a long long life like uh, other companies that are going to reinvest, look at M&A um, and, and try and build their company um, uh, as investors would probably expect more so from a junior company. I, I think I, I, you know, 99% of the cases, I would, I would agree with you. But I, again, every company is in a unique scenario. Sometimes they don't have that growth opportunity and their share price may be suffering. I think, I think in that case, Jack, they're lazy. They're lazy, right? There are plenty of opportunities out there. You've got to get off your ass and go and find them and go chase them. So um, I would say that 1% that you're referring to are lazy. It's really... But, I like saying <laughs> should, 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 should we leave it? Should we leave it on that high? <laughs> Sorry, Jack. I mean, you're spot on. I agree with you, 99. But the one are just lazy buggers. That's all. I think. Look, there's a time and place for everything, and every company and every deposit's different, and you have to look at everything, you know, on a per per deposit per company basis. But in gen generalization, if you're growing, of course, you don't want to spend money on anything but your growth.
that's all. That's all I'm saying. There you go. We we had we had we ended on a, a huge debate, and I think that that, that kind of was the only time we just dis- kind of disagreed, or there was some disagreement in the room. Uh, guys, like, well, I'm, I'm fully aligned. I mean, I'm 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 in the business of growing and expanding. Like that's what you know drives us. We're always looking to get bigger, better, um, and and grow our business. That's that's always what we want to do. You're you're the best example, or your family is the best example of that in this in this business over the last, uh, you know, 10, 10 or so years. So, um, yeah. Okay, guys. Good on you. Guys, we're going to wrap it up there. Um, I just want to say anyone listening to this, watching this, these are three good companies doing things the right way with all the right intent. Uh, you, you need to take a closer look if you haven't already to Alex Bach at Rio 2, Kevin Bullock uh, at Anaconda Mining and uh, Jack Lundin at Bluestone Resources. Gentlemen, thank you for your time today. Thank you. Thanks. It's been a pleasure, Jack and Alex. Thank you.